We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Even some of my mentors who are married and those who are not, everyone agrees that love is wonderful and everyone's ambivalent about marriage. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Oh, I, I like money. Yeah. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Looks like your wife's leaving you, mister. And need to talk about more. No, he's dead. Mr. Bond, dead. Again. I'm Anna Sale. Tiari Jones was a successful novelist after her first three books. But her fourth book, An American Marriage, is her first bestseller. And she learned it was going to be a bestseller before the book even came out. She was in Las Vegas on a fellowship. Okay, I was driving my car and I got a call and it was a block call. So I said, hello. And she said, hi, this is Oprah. Just like that. And so I put on my hazard lights and I pulled (laughs) over and she said that she had read my book and that she really loved it and she wanted to use it for her book club. And while she's talking to me, all manner of panhandlers are soliciting me for money. (laughs) They're tapping on the window. I'm shooing them away. I'm trying to make mean faces so they'll back off. And Oprah is just talking and I'm saying, yes, yes, ma'am. Yes, I would love that. Yes, thank you. With Oprah's endorsement, Tiari's novel was on the New York Times bestseller list for eight weeks after it came out in February. The book explores the confines of what's allowed for women. That's something Tiari told me she's had to do in her life. I am of a generation where there are not very many um, life mentors who have similar situations. You know, this unmarried, no children, adulthood. This is something that I think that my generation, that we're forging the, the rules of it, the limits of it, and this kind of adulthood, that is new. Like Tiari's previous novels, An American Marriage is based in Atlanta, where she grew up. Both her parents were academics. Her dad was a political scientist, and her mother was an economist. There's a quote from the writer Kelly Link, and she said about being a professor, she said, you treat your undergraduates like children, and you treat your children like undergraduates. Oh, does that that feel fitting? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) And what does that mean to be treated as an undergraduate when you're a child? Um, For example... When I was a little girl, there was a child that I adored. She was so pretty, and she had such nice clothes. And she finally wanted to be my friend, and she invited me to the zoo. And her mother came to pick us up, and we were in the car, and her mother needed to get some gas. And she stopped at a gas station called Gulf. I knew of Gulf Gas because we were boycotting Gulf Gas because Gulf Gas supported apartheid. 
And so the lady pulled into the Gulf Gas and I said, excuse me, ma'am, we don't use Gulf Gas because Gulf Gas supports apartheid and they kill children. And the lady looked at me and she said, this gas is 75 cents a gallon. And I said, yes, ma'am, but they support apartheid. And the lady, of course, not being the kind of person to treat children like undergraduates, she ignored me (laughs) and she started filling the car with gas. And I was watching the numbers on the gas rack up. And I just imagined that that money was immediately going to purchase weapons for the apartheid government. And she had to call my parents to come and pick me up. And daddy came to pick me up and he picked me up and I was hugging him around the neck and I was just crying. And he said, I am so proud of you. And that little girl never spoke to me again. I would like to point that out. (laughs) There was no secondary invitation to go to the zoo. That was not the only time that Tiare felt out of place growing up. She was always the youngest in her class. She graduated high school at 16. It wasn't until she went to Spelman, a historically black women's college in Atlanta, that she felt like she fit in. It was like I socially, emotionally hibernated, and I was like, I just have to get to college. If I can just get to college, it'll be okay. Hmm. Did the all-womanness of it feel important when you decided to go there? I had not at all thought about what it would mean to be in an all-female space. I did not know that as a girl, I had been silenced in certain ways. And it wasn't until that I was there at Spelman that I really learned about the nuances of gender and the way that gender played a part in movements for Black liberation. And it, I mean, I have to say that I had quite a crisis. I mean, it caused me to look at my own beloved father. Daddy and I are very close. And like he was friends with, like he's friends with Bell Hooks. I was like, how are you friends with Bell Hooks and never told me <laughs> about feminism? And I think daddy felt like, you know, he's a nice guy. He's a good daddy that we didn't need any feminism. We were fine. And, w- and so it took a long, long time for me to really figure out then, because feminism is really about how you deal, I mean, with the people in your life in a personal way, like the race thing, that's kind of institutional. When we were learning about apartheid, I mean, that's way across the world, reading about the civil rights movement. It was all about power, but not about the day-to-day. And I feel like feminism is about your day-to-day interactions. When Tiari graduated from Spelman, she decided to follow her parents into academia and enrolled in a Ph.D. program at the University of Iowa. It was the first time she had lived outside Atlanta in the U.S., and it was a shock. You know how, like, they tell you that the earth is 80 percent water? And you're like, I guess, but here you are sitting on solid land. That's how I felt about race in Atlanta. Like somewhere in the world, hypothetically, there are like a whole bunch of white people, but we don't know them. Mm -hmm. So I was 20 years old and I was living in Iowa City, Iowa, at which point I discovered that actually the world is 80 percent white people. It was not a rumor or a myth. It was real. (laughs) That was really kind of a stunning thing. I only lasted there a couple of years, and I quit. I was so unhappy. And also, it was a Ph.D. program in literature, and I wanted to be a writer. 
What was it like to decide to quit after being such a high-performing student for your entire life up to that point? It was really hard, but I have a mentor um, in Atlanta. She's a playwright. Um, Her name is Pearl Clegg. And I wrote her this long letter about how miserable I was and how I didn't want to be writing about writing. I wanted to do writing, but I I didn't want to quit. I felt like my parents would be disappointed. I felt that if the only black woman in the program quit, they would say, well, we tried to bring black women and they keep quitting, even though I was one Mm -hmm. person. You know, there was this weight. Mm -hmm. And I wrote to her and explained all of this. And she wrote me back and said, this is your life. You can do whatever you want. Quit right now. And just that permission I wrote a letter to the department saying I was leaving, and I wrote my parents and told them I was leaving. I kind of just, like, got up out of there. And I would like to say there were utterly no consequences. I think that the reason why people don't quit is that you think you're going to get in trouble or that it's going to go in your permanent record. There is no such thing as a permanent record. You can quit at any time and reset your life. From Iowa, Tiari moved to Texas, just outside of Houston, where she took a job teaching remedial reading to adults. She lived in a cheap apartment, started writing her first novel, and fully embraced life as a 20-something. I think of those as my frozen margarita years. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I had this little Toyota Corolla. I could go wherever I wanted. I had a job. I think it paid like $25,000 a year, which was just like a king's ransom. I had a no-frills childhood, but I'm a frilly person. So I bought this four-poster canopy bed, and I I could do anything I could imagine. I, I still remember, remember those as the best years of my life. Really? I do. I mean, every I felt so adult without the weight of adulthood. Uh-huh. What was your love life like during those years? Oh, I had the most beautiful boyfriend you ever want to see in your life. I think Uh he drove like a Toyota Celica, which was at the time (laughs) a very sexy car. And and we did things, you know, I had never I had never gone on a trip with anyone. I had never you know, we would go drive to like jazz clubs. And it was just I felt, again, like I was an adult without the encumbrances of adulthood. We were in love but had no bills in common. Did you feel, um, you know, when you're a woman in your 20s and you're in love, did did, did you start to feel a sense of momentum around what that was going to mean for you and the expectations of that relationship? You know, I thought I was too young to get married. After all, I had a novel I wanted to write and, 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 and. I didn't feel the need to settle down. I, I wanted to be living a passionate life full of art and excitement. I think I kept thinking that, oh, once I go to school to study creative writing, then I will consider a different kind of life. But for now, I have a dream. I'm chasing a dream. And I was always involved with men who were chasing dreams. And I think that what I learned that two dream chasers, that's fun, but not, it does not a household make. At what point in your life did you learn that? I mean, this is so funny. Okay, years ago, I had this boyfriend. He was a mess. He was such a mess, but I just adored him. I thought he was passionate because passionate and a mess can look the same for a while. And a woman said to me, you need to dump that man. He's going to eat your career. You're going to come home one day, and it's like Cookie Monster. He's going to eat your career. And then she made these Cookie Monster noises like, you know, just... (laughs) 
And I, you know, and I just imagined him with the crumbs of my career flying all around his head. And I felt like, you don't know him. He's talented. He's creative. And about a year later, I just looked at him and I thought, oh, my goodness, this man is eating my career. That's what he was doing. He was just gobbling it up. And I realized that I was in a position of being support staff to these men who are artists. And I just didn't want to, I didn't want to do it anymore. And what, who, who were you hanging out with during those years? What were your friends like? Well, I had a good friend by the name of Carol, and she was about 10 years older than me, and she was teaching me the ropes. Like, she taught me things like, this is going to sound kind of silly because I keep calling these my frozen margarita years. But she convinced me to walk away a bit from the frozen margaritas. And uh-huh. um, she was like, you should just drink vodka on the rocks because then people know you're serious. And, you know, at that age, you're very into becoming serious. And I've always been, (laughs) I've always been a very eager protege of women who are older than me, who teach me, you know, how to do things in life. And um, I remember I had another friend who was older than me who taught me, told me that you should always keep your passport updated. And I said, well, why? She says, what if someone is going to invite you to Paris? And I said, no one's going to invite me to Paris. She said, of course they're not, because they can tell you don't have your passport up to date. And so I was like, okay. So I went and updated my passport. I I was always eager to learn kind of the, I wanted to learn the ropes of womanhood. Yeah. I wanted a, I wanted a kind of life I had never seen before. So I was always like really attracted to women who seemed to be eccentric and kind of uncontrollable. I wanted them to teach me how they came to be so free. Coming up, Tiari talks about building that free life as a woman, but still wondering how much she owes to others. I grew up believing to she to whom much is given, much is expected. I mean, all my life there's this sense that there are so many people who are of your tribe, so many of your people who have so much less. And I do believe in social responsibility, but sometimes I just get so tired. In our last episode, I checked in with some of the people I spoke with for our student loan series. Many of them told me that over the last year, they've made some big changes in how they're handling their debt. Dina is another person I spoke with in the original episode. She sent in a voice memo after she listened to the update and said for her, it felt isolating to hear it. God, I just, I wish I could figure it out. I wish that I could understand what they're doing. Um, it, it almost kind of made me feel like a little, I don't know, alone again or like a failure a little bit. Because I'm the flip side. I'm the one that didn't pay it off. Dina said she's talked more about her student debt in the last year, but she still feels trapped by it, especially by her private student loans. I just want to, like, have, like, this mediocre lifestyle in, like, a modest house and just not be freaking out every month because the bank account is going deficit. We have some free resources on our website where you can ask questions and find help dealing with your student loans. Go to deathsexmoney.org slash student loans. One more thing to check out on our website, the new Death, Sex, and Money Starter Kit. 
It's a guide to help people who are new to the show that lists your favorite episodes. Thank you for helping us build it with your suggestions. Find the starter kit at deathsexmoney.org slash starter kit and share it with some people in your life who you think might need some death, sex, and money. On the next episode, we launch a summer of dating stories from listeners all over the country. All my experience tells me dating sucks. I'm 41 years old and I'm a widower. I have a pony and I have money. I have yet to go on a single date. There's some days where I'm like, wow, I'm the loneliest person on the planet. And there are some days where I'm like, it's okay. Like, I'm single. I'm young. I got all the time in the world. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman, and I host a podcast called Design Matters from the TED Audio Collective. Every episode, I have conversations with designers, writers, artists, and other luminaries of contemporary thought. People like Roman Mars, Ai Weiwei, Ethan Hawke, and Ashley Ford. We not only talk about their crafts, but how they design the arc of their lives, what they've learned, what obstacles they've overcome and how they've done it, and how they see the world. Join us for an inquiry into the broader world of creative culture. Find and follow Design Matters with Debbie Millman wherever you're listening to this. Hey, I want to tell you about a podcast that I really enjoy called Search Engine. It's hosted by PJ Vogt, and each week he and his team answer these perfect questions. The kinds of questions that you ask at a dinner party and totally derail the conversation. Like, episodes include, when do you know it's time to stop drinking? Does anyone like their job? How do you survive fame with Molly Ringwald? What are we going to do with all these cats? About feral cats and how they affect nature. And wait, is it unsafe to drink the water on airplanes? No, but you should definitely listen to the episode to find out more. I love listening to this show, and I usually find myself smiling the whole way through. And there's also at least one moment each episode where there's a line of writing that makes me hit pause and rewind just to admire the turn of phrase. If you find this world bewildering, but also sometimes enjoy being bewildered by it, check out Search Engine. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. An American marriage tells the story of a young Black married couple 
and what happens to their relationship when the husband is wrongfully convicted of rape and sent to prison. The wife is a successful artist who struggles to stay with a man who is absent, even though it isn't his fault. All my writing has been kind of me lining myself up to ultimately write this book, which is really about the challenges of freedom for for Black women. Because, I mean, when I would read novels by white women about women who feel unsatisfied in their marriages, you root for them. You're like, girl, get free. But Uh for Black women, it's hard to say, girl, get free when the man is in trouble. And when I do book tour things and we talk about the book, the people always say, isn't she so selfish? And they say selfish, like, isn't she a murderer? But I don't even, (laughs) you know, I don't even think she's that selfish. I think that she looks out for herself sometimes, but I don't even think she's all that selfish. But I always think when I talk about books, what are the implication of that for our real lives? And it's very challenging because as a Black person, there are people in your family, in your tribe, who do desperately need you. And so the so choosing yourself, it has consequences that are, that, that are real. Your novel, your latest novel, is called An American Marriage. Have you ever been married? I've never been married. Nope. Has that been um, an intentional identity choice or, or something that's happened? I feel like it's just something that has happened. I don't think I ever said I will never marry, but I do think that the older you get without marrying, the more being married or not becomes a choice. And sometimes people try to throw that back in your face at your highest moments. Um, I remember when I wrote my second book, which I was really proud of because your second book means you are not a flash in the pan. You're the real thing. And I had a cousin who said, wow, this is your second book. And he kind of turned it over in his hands. He looked at my author photo and he said, oh, I bet all the guys are scared of you. And I was enraged by this. And daddy tried to calm down and say, oh, I think he meant it as a compliment. And I was like, no, he did not. So there is this way of using being unmarried or not having children as a way of making women not take pleasure in your accomplishments. And you have to figure out how just to, you know, as the old people say in church, you have to figure out how just to rebuke that. When Tiari got the call from Oprah, she knew she was headed for the biggest success of her career. But because of a non-disclosure, she couldn't tell anyone about Oprah's endorsement for five months. So I just live with it, me and my publicist and Oprah. What were you thinking about during that time, about just like not knowing how your life would change? Well, you know, about... um, In 2011, I had a fellowship at Harvard University, and Mm -hmm. I met a lot of famous people, people who have been Hmm. very successful. And actually, I think it harmed my ambition meeting so many famous people because I realized that the way that you get famous and stay famous is to never be satisfied. You know, ambition is the opposite Mm. of contentment. And I think I decided I didn't want to be famous because I just saw the constant kind of hamster wheel of it all. 
And so when the Oprah call came and I knew that my book could possibly be a bestseller, I wanted to do everything I could to insulate myself against this never satisfied, this constant running. I think that I'm really lucky that this moment came, you know, 15 years into my writing career at age 47 and that I had and I had enough time. Those five months gave me enough time to really think about what I wanted and how I wanted it. And I wanted to make sure that my existing friends knew how much I loved them. And I wanted to make sure that those relationships were there to to hold me during this really, mm. this time full of transition and change. So I, I write letters and I sat down with my box of stationery and I wrote letters to so many of my friends. And then like say four days before the Oprah announcement came, I put the letters in the mail to, and all the letters just said was, you're my friend. I love you. I appreciate you. I know I may not be available in the way that I used to be, but it's not that I don't love you because I don't want to lose what I have in my life. And they got the letters early. I would like to add a coda. They got the letters early, <laughs> and they were all like, why are you tripping? You've written three books before. Why are you acting like you've never written a book before? But then once the announcement came, I think everything <laughs> made sense in a different way. Have you felt the life-changingness when it comes to money? I haven't got the money yet. You know, the way publishing works, I will not receive a dime of the royalties from an American marriage, you know, the foreign rights and everything. I won't get any of that until the middle of October. So I'm just living my normal life in my walk-up apartment. You know, I'm still buying Diet Cokes by the case because it's too expensive to buy them one at a time. Like, I'm still, uh-huh. I'm still living my life, although I have made some ill-advised clothing purchases. You like frills? I do, and I just, but I only go to neimanmarcus.com slash sale. I never go, <laughs> I never look at the things that are not on sale. Around the same time that Tiara is expecting her first royalty check, she'll be dealing with another big change in her life. She lives in New York, but this fall, she's joining the faculty at Emory University and moving back home to Atlanta. My daddy is 81. My mother is, I think my mother is 76. And everyone, all my mentors say that you will be so happy to live close to your parents as they get older. And this has always been kind of a goal of mine to get back home. And also, I'm just, I'm just a Georgia girl. As I wrote in something one time about going to Spelman, we came to feel that we were exceptional without being exceptions. That's how I feel in Atlanta. Do you think of your return to Atlanta as part of that insulating yourself from fame? In Atlanta, I know a lot of people from a lot of walks of life where its books are not the center. And I think it's good for me as a writer to be around other people. And I feel like socially in New York, I don't know how to get away from it because it is the headquarters of publishing. But in Atlanta, I know all kinds of people who do all kinds of things, and I can just kind of, I don't know, build some of my other muscles, I guess. Mm-hmm. So your parents are back in Atlanta. Yes. As you think about being an adult back in the hometown where, that you're sharing with your parents, um, is there any part of you that's nervous about that proximity? Yes. You know, I mean, I do think that one of the good things is going to be able to see my parents, and it's not Christmas. Uh-huh. I want to see them just random. I want to go to Costco with them. And I'm looking forward to being in the natural habitat. 
But at the same time, I'm like, oh my goodness, am I going to end up married to somebody I knew in high school? Like, would that mean that I'm no longer moving forward with my life? Like, does it mean that I'm not this renegade person? I mean, I always was proud of myself for, you know, heading off by myself and living in New York. What does it mean that I'm coming home? That's Tiari Jones. Her new novel is An American Marriage. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Stephanie Joyce, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And find the new Death, Sex, and Money starter kit at deathsexmoney.org slash starter kit. Before Tiari moves back to Atlanta, she's planning to celebrate one last birthday in New York City. You know, I want to do something big. I like want to invite all my friends and I want to wear sequins because I'm a Southerner. We like to sparkle. I just want to invite everyone to say goodbye. And I want, I don't want my friends to have to pay for anything. I mean, part of the stress of living in New York is that even if you're okay, your friends are not. You're always one degree of separation from someone who's in real trouble. So I want to have a lovely birthday and invite everyone out to celebrate. And I don't want anyone to worry about a thing. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.